Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August 2007 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. I'm Andy Kiriakou, filling in for Richard Lane, and I'm joined by senior editor Sally Hargreaves to discuss some highlights from this month's issue. Sally, your leading edge this month is on prison health and communicable diseases, an issue also picked up by Rachel Davis in her feature in the news section. Why is this a topical issue at the moment? Well, the issue of prison health has long been a concern for public health experts and improving the health of prisoners is now a major concern in Europe and elsewhere as rates of many infectious diseases continue to rise. What we know is that prisoners in both resource-rich and resource-poor countries are at increased risk for a wide variety of communicable diseases, including tuberculosis, HIV, hepatitis B and C and other blood-borne diseases. Tattooing, piercing and injecting drug use, for example, still remain commonplace in many prisons. It's currently estimated that there are at least 32,000 thousand tuberculosis patients in European prisons alone, mostly in Eastern Europe. This month, the WHO's European Region Health and Prisons Project has released a set of comprehensive guidelines on tackling communicable diseases in the prison context. The authors call for policymakers and prison staff to better consider the disease risks. The authors call for policymakers and prison staff to better consider the disease risks in the prison context and be more proactive in exploring suitable interventions. As you outline in your editorial, This guidance adds to a wealth of guidance on how to take the issue of prison health forward. Did we really need any more? This is a good point. Indeed, there have been a plethora of published reports, guidance documents and status papers in recent years aimed at tackling communicable diseases and ill health in prisons. Although this new focus on prison health is certainly a welcome one, many experts still remain sceptical that the practical advances that are so urgently needed are not yet being made. Indeed, implementation of existing guidelines has remained consistently poor across European countries to date. Our research showed that public health priorities are largely dominated by the individual prison administration and rarely through a coordinated national public health programme. In addition, some governments have repeatedly rejected evidence-based strategies, including needle exchange programmes, which they consider to be a tacit endorsement of illegal behaviour. So, in a sense, politics are getting in the way of progress. So what do you think are the key challenges that lie ahead in terms of improving communicable diseases control in a prison context? I think we now face the great challenge of translating policy into practice. Prison health is a field where political and public support remains rare. It is therefore imperative that we capitalise on the gains made to date in terms of our understanding of how to tackle communicable diseases in the prison context and ensure that progress is now made at the prisoner and prison level. In addition, the considerable progress that has been made by WHO's European region on prison health needs now to be expanded beyond Europe to countries where the communicable disease threat will undoubtedly be far greater. I think the role of WHO in providing leadership and direction internationally will be crucial. Now on to the review on cholera by Jane Zuckerman and colleagues at the WHO Collaborating Centre for Travel Medicine. Can you tell us a bit more about cholera and other diarrheal diseases worldwide? Well, diarrheal diseases generally are caused by a range of bacteria, including Vibrio cholera, E. coli, Shigella, Campylobacter and Salmonella and they constitute major global public health problems in resource-poor countries worldwide. This is particular in Africa, Asia, South America and Central America. Cholera itself is often indistinguishable from other causes of acute diarrheal diseases. However, cholera can be rapidly fatal in severe cases, and if left untreated can result in up to 50% mortality. Cholera is transmitted via the faecal-oral route, with epidemics often occurring after war, civil unrest and natural disasters when water or food supplies become contaminated with the bacteria, compounded by crowded living conditions with limited sanitation. Rapid administration of fluid replacement therapy and supportive treatment can reduce mortality to around 1%. So what issues do Zuckerman and colleagues raise about the surveillance of cholera globally? 
The authors make the point that the true burden of cholera globally on the health of populations is not known, mainly in light of the fact that existing surveillance systems are poor. In many countries, existing surveillance and reporting systems, including differences in reporting procedures and a failure to report cholera to the WHO, means that official figures are likely to greatly underestimate the true prevalence of the disease. What we do know is that cholera appears to be on the increase. Why is improved surveillance important? At present, many decisions concerning the prevention and control of cholera are based on these surveillance reports compiled by the WHO. Underreporting hinders provision of appropriate health advice to travellers and adequate interventions in at-risk indigenous populations because policymakers are underestimating the true risk and burden of cholera. Efforts to improve the accuracy and availability of information relating to the epidemiology of cholera will be crucial in ensuring that individuals at risk are identified and that interventions, for example prevention strategies, are targeted appropriately. The authors highlight the role that vaccines could now have as a public health intervention in low-income countries. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yes, production of the first injectable killed wholesale vaccines began shortly after the causative agent was discovered in the 1880s. These vaccines are widely used by travellers in the early part of the 20th century when proof of vaccination against cholera was required by many countries. Several newer vaccines against cholera are currently licensed in some countries and there are several live attenuated vaccines against cholera that are now being developed. Mass vaccination against cholera, however, is a relatively new strategy. According to the authors of this review, the administration of effective cholera vaccines as a public health intervention in low-income countries is now feasible and vaccination could be considered as an additional tool to combat cholera in low-income countries, alongside established control measures such as improving sanitation. The WHO currently recommends preemptive use of cholera vaccination in certain endemic and epidemic situations, although clear guidelines have yet to be developed. Mass vaccination has been shown to be effective in refugee camps, for example. However, as these experts note, for mass vaccination to be truly effective, improved disease surveillance is imperative. The authors are concerned that cholera cases are on the rise. Why is this? I think there are a number of reasons for this. There has undoubtedly been a rise in global travel in recent years to high-risk areas. Furthermore, civil unrest and the increasing incidence of natural disasters as a result of climate change may place more emergency relief workers and military personnel at risk of infection. I think that the important point raised in this review is that the true extent of the global burden of this disease needs to be evident.